Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1 as we begin a new uh, series today. Um, <clears throat> I've uh, entitled the series, The Rise of a Better King, and uh, this, this sermon will be uh, uh, the whole of chapter 1, and I've entitled it, Thinking About His Death, Thinking About His Death. Um, this, you know, there's a, lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of debate about whether there's such a thing as objective truth, right? Um, in our society, particularly today, um, the, uh, the world is arguing for, well, there's multiple truths in all different kinds of areas. You can believe that, and I'm going to believe this other thing, and we're both equally right. Well, we're going to be confronted uh, in this chapter... Uh, with the reality that that's not so, that there's only one way to, to think about something. Um, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll catch up on that uh, theme in just a minute. Um, if you were here last week, um, I preached 1 Samuel. I, I went back and looked. I think it was eight years ago. So it's been a long time uh, ago that we were in 1 Samuel, and many of you weren't here back then. So last week, I, I, uh, I did my best to do a uh, one-sermon overview of the entire book of 1 Samuel. Uh, and uh, that, if it's not on the website, it will be shortly. Uh, if you want to bone up on 1 Samuel, to, uh, I wanted to do that to kind of set the stage for this series as we would launch into 2 Samuel. Um, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are, are actually just one book. It's a big, long uh, history book. Uh, and, uh, and the translators broke it into two. Uh, so uh, I'm going to reference this reality, and I think you'll sense it right away, that the last chapter of 1 Samuel just runs right into the first chapter of 2 Samuel, and the story continues. And it very much has this continuity. Um, <clears throat> last week I mentioned that, uh, in trying to just sort of summarize 1 Samuel for us, I mentioned that it was two kinds of uh, it, it was two different kinds of a book. It was a book of, tran- of transition. It was also a book of uh, replacements, where God was replacing uh, leaders in Israel with better ones. Um, and that was the, the way we sort of looked at it. Um, it was, First Samuel is a book of transition because it records a time in which God moves his people from uh, a loose affiliation of tribes and clans, uh, you know, that just happen to live in one land, uh, moving them from that sort of loose coalition. Uh, I think of like, uh, you know, before the, uh, our, our, our nation's constitution was written, you know, and how, how the states were really strong and they were kind of together, but they had their kind of own things also. That was kind of like um, how Israel was uh, in the beginning. Uh, in the book of Judges. And, uh, and God's moving in, in 1 Samuel, the, the, this loose affiliation of tribes and clans, into a unified nation, a unified people. Uh, it's also, it was also a book of transition because uh, also when, when the, the people were kind of divided into these different families and that, uh, a section of the nation would get in trouble. From time to time, an enemy would come and attack or something like that. And, and God would mercifully raise up a judge, which is just another way to say a leader, um, 
but he would be a regional leader just for this little area of the land and, and, and just for a, a short time. With His kids wouldn't follow him to be judges, this sort of thing. So it was this sort of uh, uh, time of transition from that sort of, you know, uh, short-term and, and, and uh, tight geography kind of leader to an actual king, a king who would, who would rule the entire nation and, uh, and bring them together. That's why I said that 1 Samuel was a book of transition, but, it was, but it's also a book of replacements. And so we saw, um, we, the first replacement we saw was uh, through the death of Eli, who was this spiritually dense priest, or perhaps even judge, you might think of him as. And he was replaced with the faithful Samuel that was born to Hannah. And through Samuel, God's word went out to all of Israel. So just this glorious replacement. Uh, for the good of the people. But then there was uh, this other replacement. There was this promise of a replacement. Uh, uh, the promise that uh, King Saul, who had rejected God's word, uh, would be replaced by David, a man after God's own heart, uh, who would serve the people as he served God. In fact, God directed Samuel to privately anoint David in the middle of 1 Samuel. Nobody really knew except uh, the, uh, Jesse, his father, and and uh, their family there, um, that, that he would be privately anointed, anointed, signaling that he would be Saul's successor. But that would only happen after Saul's death. Uh, and uh, that finally came in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 31. So if you're open to 2 Samuel 1, just turn back a page uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 31. And in verse 2, we read this. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. A couple verses later, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Verse 6, thus Saul died and his three sons and all his men on the same day together. And that sets the stage for the replacement that would be David. And that's why 2 Samuel, which covers uh, uh, David's reign, is called the, uh, we're calling it the rise of a better king as we look at 2 Samuel. Um, I mentioned that the 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are, are two parts of one larger book, so today picks, off, picks up where that recount, recounting of Saul's death, uh, left off. Uh, as he died in battle against the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. So let's, uh, let's turn our attention to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Um, this is the text that we're going to set our uh, minds to today. Be cautioned that this is not just an interesting history book. This is actually God who made us speaking to us. This is his word, so pay careful attention, friends. God's word reads like this. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. 
And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord." Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it should be uh, taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar, He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle." Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. Well, an important chapter in the history of Israel here. Um, I, uh, I intend to show to you that the theme of this first chapter is this that there's only one way to think about the death of the Lord's anointed. There's only one way to think about the death of the Lord's anointed. Remember, just a moment ago I said there's this, you know, there's this sort of intellectual and, and religious fight out there that says there's, there's no one way to think about anything. You know, we're an enlightened people after all. We should, you know, we should all be able to come up with our own way of thinking equally as good as someone else's thinking. But we're confronted in this text that when it comes to the death 
of the one that God anoints to lead his people, there's only one way to think of his death. When he dies, there's only one way to think of it. But in this chapter, we get more than one way to think of it. 2 Samuel chapter 1 paints two contrasting pictures of how to conceive of, of this idea of Saul being killed. But only one of them is right. Only one of them is right. Only one of them honors God and demonstrates trust in him. And, and we come to see these opposing views when a young man comes with news from the battlefield. That's the setting of this chapter. So this is how we're going to break it down, our text. There's four R's for you to trace, okay? First, we're going to look at the report. That's in verses 1 through 4. Secondly, we're going to look at the rationale from the perspective of this messenger of why Saul's dead. His rationale, that's going to be verses 5 through 10. Then we're going to look at two reactions from David, how David thought about the death of Saul. And that's, a long, that's most of the chapter, verses 11 through about 27. And then finally, some closing thoughts on the rest of the story. What Saul's death essentially um, was a platform for what's coming. So, the report, the rationale, a couple of reactions from David, and the rest of the story. That's how we'll approach it. First, the report. Um, just allow your eyes to drop back in, in the passage. We just read it, but we're going to start picking some pieces out so that we can see how it fits together. Look at verse 2. A man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Drop down to 4. This is what he reported. The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen. Many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Verse two tells us a man came from the battlefield directly to David to give him this report. But why? Why was it? I mean, isn't David? Israel's champion? I mean, you remember the Goliath story. There wasn't anyone else that went down into the breach. David is Israel's champion. Why is David on the sidelines? Why does he not know firsthand what's going on in this battle against the Philistines? Notice how the scene opens. Verse 1, right at the beginning there. After the death of Saul... When David had returned from striking down the Amalekites. Okay, so David was doing something else while this battle was going on. When David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Where in the world is that? And on the third day, this guy shows up. So that's how our setting opens, our scene opens. A couple of things to note here. We've got we to gotta pull some sort of uh, literary uh, context from 1 Samuel so we know why it is that, that uh, David was in Ziklag and not on the battlefield. Well, David, of course, had been running for his life. Saul wanted to kill him, and so he was forced to go into hiding. And, and as you read through 1 Samuel, he's, he's going all over the place hiding from, from Saul. And finally, he's left no other choice. He needs to hide among the Philistines. Uh, and so uh, David and his men, we're reading here at the beginning, are in Ziklag. This is a city that the Philistine king Achish had given David and his, and his uh, men and their families. 
it was what now you got to like think about where Ziklag is. I know there's not a map here, just but just picture uh, the promised land, picture Canaan. Ziklag is way far in the south of Canaan. It's due west from the bottom of the Dead Sea. Uh, if you can think of some other cities or areas, it was near Beersheba uh, and the Negev, the southernmost part of Canaan. And this could not have been farther from where the fighting was going on between the Philistines and Israel. The Philistines went out to battle Israel way north of Ziklag, near Mount Gilboa, which is on the edge of the Jezreel Valley, just south of the Sea of Galilee. So the Dead Sea is way down here. You've got to travel all the way up the Jordan, and then finally you get to the Sea of, the Ga- sea of Galilee, and the Jezreel Valley is right here, just south of it, and that's where the fighting is happening. Days and weeks' journey from Ziklag. So David's way down in the south there, and uh, because the Philistine commanders wouldn't let David and his men go out with the Philistines to fight Israel. And so David here had to wait for news many, many miles south of the battlefield. Now, we don't know much about the messenger, although he appears to be loyal to Israel, just from what we read on face value. He's described as being from Saul's camp in verse 2, and again in verse 3, from the camp of Israel. So he appears to be somebody that has somehow aligned himself uh, with Israel. He clearly knows that David is Israel's next king, or why would he have sought David out so far away? He, kn- he knows where David was, despite the fact that he was hiding from Saul in this Philistine city. Um, and, he bow- and when he arrives, he bows down to the ground and pays homage to David. We see that in verse 2 also. And what's more, he presents David with the accoutrement of being king. Here, David, here's the crown, and here's also this kind of bracelet thing that you slide up your arm called an, an armlet that, was, that the king wore. Finally, one more detail. Verse 2 also tells us that his clothes are torn, and he's got dirt on his head. Now, this is, uh, this, these actions were symbolic of mourning. Uh, we see David do it in just a minute, right? Like when you tear your clothes, it's just like you want to like demonstrate outside what's going on inside. You've lost somebody very dear to you. The, the nation is lost, that kind of thing. Like how can it be? And you just kind of tear your shirt. And another way to do it is just to put dirt or ashes on your head. And it was just symbolic of being uh, grieved over something greatly. That's what we see about this messenger why did he go and deliver the message to David? We, we don't have that detail in our text. Perhaps he was hoping for a re- reward for David of some kind. Or perhaps a position in the new you know, court or in his new uh, elite military guard for the king or something like that. We don't know his motives for sure. But something else comes to light when David seeks more details about what happened on the battlefield. Something else comes to light. David presses for more assurances. How can he be certain that this report is accurate? David asks him in verse 5, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I mean, did you just hear it from somebody else who heard it from somebody else? Did you just sort of surmise that that's what happened because of some details that you saw leading up to it, but you didn't really see his death? Like, how can I know for sure? It's an important question to know whether or not the president's been assassinated is in fact dead. Think about it that way. 
This is a grave issue, and he wants to be sure. This simple question that David asks actually uncovers a lot about the young messenger, about what he really thought about the death of Saul. As I said, the theme here is that there's only one way to think about the death of the Lord's anointed. One way. We turn to the first one presented for us in the text. In verses 5 through 10, we're told what the messenger thought of the death of the Lord's anointed. We see his rationale for Saul's death. Even with the messenger being pressed to provide more details, to our shock, he claimed to have actually been involved in bringing about Saul's death. The man went on to explain that Saul had tried to kill himself but was unsuccessful. And so he's sort of leaning on a spear there and he's in great agony, but, but death is coming very slowly. So it's this horrible, painful, slow death, and yet the Philistine army is still coming. Saul asked the young man to hasten his death, we're told. Verse 9, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me and yet my life lingers. So I stood beside him, the messenger says. And killed him. Now, I would point out just right away that these details from the messenger, they actually conflict with the last chapter of 1 Samuel. If you read them side by side, these details that he's bringing to light, they don't jibe with chapter 31. Chapter 31 tells us that Saul fell on his own sword and that he was seen to be dead by his armor bearer. You can read that in verses 4 and 5 of the last chapter. So what is the explanation for these discrepancies? It may be that the messenger lied, thinking it would ingratiate himself to David knowing Saul had wanted David dead and this would bring the new king relief. We don't know. The fact that he was an Amalekite, though, certainly raises suspicions about the truthfulness of his report. The messenger is identified as an Amalekite twice in our text, verse 8 and again in verse 13. Now, you have to know something about Israel's history to, to see why it's suspicious this report from this Amalekite. The Amalekites were ancient terrorists. They were ancient enemies of Israel ever since they came out of Egypt. Every chance they got, they took, took advantage of Israel. Anytime they were in a weak position, they, they, they would come and sack a city, take hostages away, that sort of thing. Um, and and, and uh, God had cursed them as a nation way back in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 14. It, it's it's said again in Deuteronomy. I mean, it's in, in many places. But an Amalekite showing up in the Old Testament is code for, watch out, this guy's not right. And, and, and so it is in, in our text. In fact, David had just returned from verse 1, striking down who? The Amalekites. Why? If we, if we just went back a couple chapters, we could read the account of it. While David was presenting him and his, and his men to, to, uh, to the Philistine commanders so that they could go out and fight against Israel, we think they were going to you know, align with Israel once they got to the battlefield. But while they were doing that, the Amalekites went down to Ziklag, burnt the city to the ground, take, took all of their families and all of their possessions. 
Then David and his men come back to Ziklag after, after they're not allowed to go on the battlefield. And they went and they pursued the Amalekites and they struck all of them down, uh, reclaiming their families and their possessions, only to return back to a smoldering city. Just then, just then, this Amalekite messenger shows up with his message. It's, uh, it, it just, <laughs> the, the beauty of the literature here that God has written for us just showcases for us this idea that this might not be right, this report. But whatever the truth was about this Amalekite's involvement in Saul's death, listen to the reason he gives. Listen to his thinking. What he thinks is sufficient and reasonable in order to justify slaying Israel's king. Look at verse 10 there. Do you see it? I was sure, I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. Boy, that's quite a statement, isn't it? Let's, I mean, just on its face, I was sure he was going to not live. I mean, we, we all have probably felt that way, seeing somebody decline in health. But who among us is sure? People rally back from illnesses all the time. I, I mean, because of God's good pleasure. God causes cancers to go into remission for long, long stretches, far longer than doctors say are, are possible. Illnesses just go away, right? I mean, these sorts of things. And yet, this man says, I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. He had thought, Saul's going to die soon, so I'll put an end to his suffering. Maybe that's what he thought. Or perhaps he didn't care about Saul's situation at all and thought, I'm just going get, to get rid of him so that I'll get, it, get in good with David. Well, he clearly misjudges the man he means to impress. David will respond, as we'll see in a few moments here. But the man in these words also reveals his heart. He thinks there are good reasons to strike down Israel's king. And this is not the right way to think about the death of the Lord's anointed. This is the bad example in our narrative. Whether it was for personal advancement, because he judged the king to be unsuited for his role, or, or, or because he feared the king would survive long enough to be mistreated by the enemies, or whether he really believed that his death was imminent, it doesn't matter. None of these reasons were sufficient to justify touching the one that God put on the throne. What if God had intended to heal him? What, what if God intended for uh, another nation to come alongside of, of them right at the nick of time and, and, and save the, the king and perhaps even his sons and many others? What if God was planning on leading Israel to an incredible victory? What if... I mean, who can know the mind of God and the good plans he has for his people? Who are we to end a life and to push God into a certain cause of action, at least from our perspective? How often this kind of self-centered reasoning is used to try and justify hurting other people, running them down, or even killing them? The history of humanity is filled with such wrong thinking. I'll never forget a conversation I had with a, a, a girl I went to high school 
with. I, I, was, I was really good friends with her. It was at the end of our first semester of college. We didn't go to the same college, but I think we must have been home for Thanksgiving or Christmas or something. And uh, she had reached out to me and she said it was really important and she needed uh, some advice. You see, she had gotten pregnant and uh, she wasn't really looking for advice as much as me to agree with her that she should get an abortion. She had lots of different reasons. And I wasn't a Christian back then, and, 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 and many of them were, uh, uh, I thought, good reasons at the time. You know, she was too young to have a kid. She didn't love the young man that she got pregnant with. She had, you know, college to finish. She had just started, and of course, she was very afraid of her dad's reaction. I wasn't a Christian, as I said, so I didn't know how to hold biblical truth out to her like God is the one who gives life and takes it away. That's his prerogative and his alone. And to try to force his hand is actually a great evil. To try to come up with some justification for hurting someone else or, or even killing someone else, that there, that there are these alternate ways that are equally good, this is, this is just simply not true. And just as there's only one way to think about the death of the Lord's anointed, there's also only one way to think about murdering another person who bears God's image that he gave life to. Whether it's an unborn baby or someone suffering from a very painful disease or someone who doesn't have long to live, none of these reasons justify taking someone else's life. Look back at chapter 31 of the, uh, just before our text for a moment. We actually see someone react and think about this prospect of killing Saul in the right way before we even get to our text. Look at verse 4, I believe it is. I'll start in 3. The battle pressed hard against Saul. The archers found him. He was badly wounded by the archers. Verse 4, then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Feared who? He didn't fear the Philistines. That, that, that makes no sense. He feared this idea of raising his hand up against the Lord's anointed. To kill the Lord's anointed is to kill God's earthly representative. To kill the one God appointed to lead his people is to rebel against God himself. I mean, Paul used the same logic. That's why I had Nathan read from, from Romans 13 there, right? I'll just read the, the first two verses. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Who is ever in government over you, just submit to them. Why? For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. You see? Same logic. Don't touch Saul. Why? Because God has appointed him king over Israel. Who are you to, to try to change things? So I would just ask you, just by way of application, how is your attitude towards people who you're supposed to submit to? 
And we've got lots of people we're supposed to submit to, right? We have employers, right? Uh, if, if you're a, a kid today, you've got maybe dad you need to submit to, mom you need to submit to, right? Wives, submit to your husbands. You know, citizens, submit to police officers and local judges and the governor and the legislature and, and, and the president and the Supreme Court and, and all the rest. There's lots and lots of, of people that are over you, and God put all of them over you in those different arrangements. And so I would just ask you, how's your attitude towards people that you're supposed to submit to? That maybe you don't agree with? That maybe you think they're inept? They're not good for the role or whatever. While it's unlikely that, you know, a number of you are going to stage some kind of coup, right, uh, up in Lansing or something like that, we can do that in our minds. We can do that with our words. And when you do that, you take a strike against the Lord who appointed those people. It's not that you can't disagree with policies and, and things like that. That's not what I'm trying to say. But what I'm trying to say is, once somebody's in a position over you, you're supposed to just take that as the Lord's will and submit to them, right? Not silence yourself, not have opinions, these sorts of things, but, but to have this attitude of trusting God in it. We often want trials to end involving other people's influence in our lives, not giving any thought or care to God having good purposes through those uh, appointments. I mean, God worked through enemy kings all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, he used one enemy king to free Israel from exile and to give them everything that they would need to rebuild the city and the temple, right, in the, in the Persian emperor. Friends, submit to those over you as to the Lord. So long as they don't require you to sin or bring dishonor to God, submit to them with joy, knowing that God gave them to you. And don't forget that the, the Savior taught that slandering someone is like killing them in your heart. So be careful, friends. Guard your heart. Don't try to impress others by killing those, even with words you think others will commend you for. So that seems to be what the messenger did. Let's take a lesson from that. Well, all right, let's turn to David's thinking about the death of the Lord's anointed. There's only one way to think about it, as I've said. That's our theme. That's the message of the text. We've already looked at the report. We've already looked at the rationale that the messenger gave about Saul's death. And now we turn to David's thinking. And we see in the text, the, the great weight of the text, two reactions from David. They cover verse 11 all the way to the end of the chapter. His first reaction to the news of Saul's death is lamentation. Now that might not be a word you use very often. It's the name of a book in the Bible. Lamentation is a great mourning over, over, uh, over loss. Uh, typically over death or coming judgment or, or some uh, terrible situation that you find yourself in. A great mourning certainly over the death of the king and those who died with him in battle. That's what David, his first response we see. His first way of thinking, if you will. Is, 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 to be, uh, is to mourn. David and all the men with him tore their clothes, verse 11 we read, not unlike the Amalekite here, 
he, he came with torn clothes also. But what followed demonstrated David's sincerity. Look at verse 12, how it's described. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Just because David had been hiding with the Philistines did not mean his heart was not with God's people. I think I highlighted last week, even even while he was supposedly fighting for the Philistines, he was really covertly fighting for the Israelites. You can read about that in 1 Samuel. It's, uh, it's this wonderful way in which David remained faithful even when he was far uh, from the leadership uh, of Israel. How strange, though. How strange this text I just read to you. Verse, uh, verse 12. This morning for Saul... This is bizarre. Do you, I mean, do you appreciate that? David and Saul were not best buddies. They were not even cordial friends, like, you know, sort of acquaintances. I mean, David served him faithfully, but, but Saul wanted him dead. I mean, that David would mourn the loss of a man who had an evil spirit and was blinded by self-advancement and murderous rage. I mean, he had hurled a spear at David a couple of different times while they were in a room in, in his court. And he had ordered the death of those who supported him. Remember when he ordered the slaughter of all the priests at Nob? Because the, the high priest had dared to give David bread and a sword? Do you remember that? David had been forced to flee into the wilderness hiding, moving from place to place, living on the run, even living with the Philistines, feigning allegiance uh, with them, as I've mentioned. I mean, if anyone had cause to think killing Saul was a good thing, it was David. David had, had served Saul faithfully, led his army time and again, ministered to the king even with music when he was upset by that evil spirit, and, and, and all of that only to be treated like a criminal and a traitor to the throne. To be on the bad end of a manhunt. But David thought it was wrong to raise a hand against the man who God anointed as king of his people. This is demonstrated so plainly for us. Twice David was tested on this point. The Lord placed the king in David's hand twice. Once in a cave, once Saul and all of his men were sleeping and David could walk right up upon them without any of them stirring. Twice David spared his life when he could have taken it. And it wasn't just for show. He really believed that it was wrong to raise his hand against the one that God had, had anointed. After all, David wrote a song of lament. He called it to be taught to the people of Judah, verses 17 and 18, put in this book of righteous, uh, 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 heroic kind of literature for the people to learn, like their hymn book, kind of, if you will. May we learn from it as well this morning. Notice just a few things from the Lamentation. It's a long song. I'm not going to cover all the details. I just want to highlight a few things for you. Again, think about this. This is bizarre, friends, that David would respond to Saul's death in this way. 
He spoke of his best friend, Jonathan. This is not strange. In the song. Spoke of Jonathan, whose loss would have been such a blow to David. And he spoke of Jonathan as we would expect in soaring terms. Notice how Jonathan's love is spoken of in verse 26. Jonathan's love is rightly held out because it was a costly love. He essentially handed the succession of the throne over to him. Remember, symbolically he did it. Uh, Jonathan took off his suit of armor, his royal coat of arms, and gave it to David. Do you remember that? So it was this costly love. Jonathan, uh, you know, even would side with David over his own father when David was in the right and his father was in the wrong. He even came out and strengthened David in the Lord when he was hiding from Saul. It's a strange little, just one sentence. It's unbelievable. David's out on the run and somehow Jonathan shows up and just wants to encourage him in the Lord. It's right of David to, to speak of his friendship in such terms and to, and to express his deep loss of Jonathan in this way. But notice also that most of the time he spoke of Jonathan in the lament, he spoke of him together with Saul in gracious, God-honoring ways. He like rounded up on Saul. He spoke of Saul in almost the same terms as he did Jonathan, in exactly the same terms in a number of times. Verses 19, 25, 27, how the mighty have fallen. Referring to both Saul and Jonathan. In verses 22 and 23, he spoke of both Saul and Jonathan and their military might that was lifted up and proclaimed, right, commended. He even said in verse 24, that their victories brought prosperity to Israel. Look at what he said about Saul there. He addresses the, the women of Israel. He says, daughters of Israel, 24, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. What's he talking about? Every victory of Saul brought back these treasures or at least protected the borders so that they could have an economy that was, that was happening in their own land. But finally, David's lament was motivated primarily, we have to see here, by by the honor of the Lord. By the honor of the Lord. God's gift of Saul and Jonathan to his people, he said, was the glory of Israel in verse 19. God's glory to his people in providing leaders. For that reason, he wanted the death of the Lord's anointed not to be celebrated in any way, not to reach the, the, the cities and streets of Philistine where people might you know, rejoice and, and sort of high-five each other over the death of Israel's king. We too need to be concerned about the Lord's honor as we talk about other people God has given to us, even after they're gone. You know, sometimes we have a Sometimes we have a very difficult person that's over us that we have to work with all the time. And the Lord in his kindness moves that person on. Perhaps they die. Perhaps they retire. Perhaps they get you know, sent to another department, change a job, etc. Even if they are difficult people, rude people, inept people, let the world hear us have no corrupting talk coming out of our mouths, as Paul would commend in Ephesians chapter 4. No corrupting talk, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's 
what people who have found grace look like when they talk about difficult people. They're generous. They're gracious. Let us not run people down when they stop working at our places of, uh, of work or they move out of our neighborhoods or out of our lives in some way. Let us speak as representatives of our Savior, as those who have been transformed and who have the best one over us, even a king who reigns in perfect justice and righteousness from heaven. Let David's lament of a terrible king be an example to us of how to do it. But again, this is bizarre. Like, even as we hold up the the good example, the right way to do it, we find ourselves lacking. I find myself lacking. I mean, remember that this response of David is a supernatural thing. That kind of submission and love for someone who demonstrated themselves to be squarely against him. This is nothing short of a fruit of the Spirit of God. I mean, pray for his help that we might live this way. Jesus taught his disciples to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven so that you might be seen as sons and daughters of the king. That's how you do it. Love your enemies. Pray for the, even people who persecute you, it says. And of course, Jesus was the supreme example of this. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. While, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's when he came to save. When no one was looking for salvation. Even while our Savior hung from the cross, suffering his slow, terrible death to pay for the sins of those who were yet his enemies, he prayed, Father, forgive them. That's Luke 24, I'm sorry, 23 and 34. Father, forgive my enemies. That kind of love flows from the love of the Savior in the hearts of the forgiven. So pray for your enemies. Pray for people who are hard. Pray for the people that you really don't enjoy hanging around and having to work under. Love them even. Cultivate a heart for those who are harsh to you and lead you insensitively and and in selfish ways. Ask God to soften your heart and have a genuine care for your enemies. That even when harm comes to them, you would have genuine compassion, even an ability to mourn over them. Or their circumstances. What an impact we'd have on the world if we lived like that. David's first reaction was to lament the loss of Saul. The other was to condemn the Amalekites' shameful way of thinking about the life of the Lord's anointed. David confronted the man with this damning question. Verse 14. How is it? It's hard for me not to read this with like sort of like just sarcastic, you know, dripping, you know, knives from from this question. How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? How is it possible? How did you manage it? David seems incredulous that that this man would think it was okay to to God, that it was okay to, to, to go against God, Okay to go against the man that God set over his people? 
I mean, it was the same zeal for the Lord's honor that motivated David to go out against Goliath. Do you remember? Remember, all of Israel was shaken in their boots. Everybody frightened about Goliath, even Saul. And David was motivated not because he was a he-man. He was motivated by protecting the Lord's honor. This Goliath, this champion of the Philistines, was running God's name through the mud. I'll be his champion. I'll be God's champion and he'll fight for me. It's the same sort of motivation we see uh, here in David condemning the Amalekite for what he had done. And so he had that man executed for the evil that he himself had admitted to. You read that in verses 15 and 16. You want to know what God thinks about there only being one way to think about something? It's, it's seen in verses 15 and 16. Run them through. Think wrongly about the death of the Lord's anointed and you will be judged. There's only one way to think, you see, about the death of the Lord's anointed. Our text gives us two contrasting characters, two different ways to think about killing, uh, killing the person whom God placed on the throne. May our minds be renewed today as we consider them. May our minds be renewed as we examine our patterns of thought. That's where the battleground for us is, you see. The way we think, for it motivates how we behave. To bring every thought under submission. That's what we want to be as Christians. Always pursuing that. Taking every sort of pattern of thought. Taking it under submission to to God's call on his people by his grace. Okay, we're almost done here. We've looked at the report. We've looked at the rationale of the Amalekite, the two responses by David. Now let's consider the rest of the story. Just a few things I want you to consider here. Things that aren't right up on the surface. Number one, Saul was the first of the men that would serve as the Lord's anointed. He was the first king of Israel. But there would be many, many others that would follow him. David would be next, of course, and then Solomon, and then countless others. You can read about them in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Many more kings would come until one day, in the fullness of time, Jesus the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He would be the fulfillment of all the kings that came before him. And Jewish leaders and Roman soldiers and many others would think and act like the Amalekite acted towards Saul. You know, even as I keep referring to this sort of antiquated word, the Lord's anointed, well, that's what God would have done by a priest when he'd pick a king. He had Samuel anoint David in the middle of 1 Samuel. I think it's like 15 or somewhere in there. I might not have the right chapter. But that that phrase, that idea of being the anointed one, when it gets translated, or well, anointed is English, obviously, but it's translated from the Hebrew, right, the Messiah, and the Greek version of Messiah is Christ. And so, so that's why I'm bringing us forward to Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the last and best anointed one. Sinners who Christ came to save would too dare to reject him. They would strike him and kill him. They would do what the psalmist foretold in Psalm chapter 2. Remember those words? 
the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heaven laughs. And, and the father essentially says, kiss the anointed, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The psalmist says, the peoples are going to reject the Lord's anointed again and again. And they'll finally reject even his own son who comes as the, as the promised Christ. For those who turned against him and shared in the responsibility for his death, they will be judged. Apart from God's mercy and repentant faith before they died, they're, they're thinking that killing the Lord's anointed, his Christ, was justified. Think Pontius Pilate. Think, think Herod. Think the Jewish leaders and others. Unless they repented and placed their trust in him, reversed what they were doing in their minds, they would be treated in eternity how the Amalekite was treated in Ziklag. That's number one. Number two. Even when evil men try to force God's hand, they only advance his plans. No one can thwart the will of God. No one can, can alter his plan. They only serve his purposes. Even when they have wicked intentions, he brings about good from them, as he, is all, as he has always planned. What the Amalekite admitted to was rebellion against God, and he was found guilty of it. He, he was culpable for it. It was the wrong way to think about the death of the Lord's anointed. And yet, even though his intentions were wicked, follow me now, even though his intentions were wicked, God had planned for Saul to die all along so that he could be replaced by David, a man after his own heart. God bears no culpability for the way in which Saul died. The Amalekite does. But even in his wicked intentions, he pushes forward God's plan. It's miraculous. It's praiseworthy. Who are we to be afraid of, friends, if, if, if wicked people come against us and it only serves to push forward God's plan? Let us praise him, even in dark days. Finally, number three, sin affects all of creation and all the people in the world. It affects people in every way. It affects the way they think. People don't think right. Even Christians, we, our brains are, you know, they don't operate on all cylinders. It's not, we, we're, not the, we're not the smartest we could be. We're not the, 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 the detail-oriented, perfected thinkers that we could be apart from sin. And so we go out on our mission into a world of people that don't think right. They can't understand the good news about Christ's death and resurrection. Men will hear it and they will mock it. They will think they understand it, but they will think about it in exactly the wrong way. For there's only one way to the Father. It's through the Son. It's through repentant faith in his death for us in our place and his resurrection, his defeat of sin and the grave. It brings about forgiveness and eternal life. It's the only way. But men hear that and they don't think that's true. But here's the beauty. Christ goes with us. He goes with us and he gives us a message that the Spirit uses to make people who used to think wrongly about Christ think rightly. 
And so we go out with the word of God, with the story of the Messiah, the God's anointed. We go out with the story about the anointed one who was killed but rose again and brings hope to sinners. And as we declare that message, in God's mercy, people start to see it. They start to see the death of the Lord's anointed, Jesus Christ himself, in the right way. So friends, don't despair in your evangelism. Don't give up on that neighbor that has, you know, that has turned away from the things that you try to share with them. Don't give up on that family member. Keep pressing. Keep going. The Lord's with us. Take just a few moments of quiet reflection over the word. And may he speak to his people.